0: Last week, I mentioned that for the next few weeks in our series, Church Life, we will be examining and peeling back the layers. Of the, church, uh, uh, of the church by using some of the church's most popular metaphors in scripture. Um, and, and so what we want to do and what we hope to do is learn a little bit more about the role, the purpose, and the function, and the, and the aim ultimately of the church. So last week we started by taking a deep dive into the ideal of the church as a body. Now like a body, as we discussed last week, we know that every part has a function, And every part, even when it's hidden, is still necessary. All the unique giftings are used to serve the the, the common good of the whole body. And when all the parts are working together, each part is stronger. We said that that was a great picture of, of what the church should ultimately aim to be. Not working in isolation, not working as long rangers, but standing together in all of its diverse but essential parts. Now this week on Father's Day, it seems appropriate uh, to take a moment and talk about the church as family. Romans 8 is one of the best places for us to, to unpack this ideal of the church as family. And as I reflect, as I reflect on the ideal of church as family, and as I reflect on Father's Day, I certainly can't can't help but to reflect on my late father. He passed in 2011, but one of the great qualities that jumps out about, about him to me is his massive, massive heart towards others. It was a heart so big and and so, and so full of, of life and full of compassion and full of warmth that you you wouldn't have to speak to many people for very long before you heard them describe this big heart that my father carried and walked with. My parents, in fact, have over 20 God kids, different ages, different personalities, but the one common quality is that they were loved deeply by my parents. They were loved deeply by my late father. And the reason why... The reason why they were were loved so deeply is because they treated each of them like their own, or at least the reason why they felt they were loved so deeply is because they treated each of them like their own. Do you know someone like that? Do you know someone in your life, someone that wasn't your parent but treated you like his or her own? Maybe it was a teacher in your life. Maybe it was a coach in your life. Maybe it was a neighbor, maybe it was an uncle or aunt, maybe it was a church member growing up, maybe it was the pastor in your life. Quite possibly in some cases they even treated you better than your own family treated you. They treated you like actual family. You know, I was recently surfing the web and I happened to stumble across a story that captures this ideal of Treating someone like family quite well. It's a story about a child named Eddie. Eddie was born with Down syndrome, and his mother and father, instead of caring for him or seeking care for him, left Eddie in a trash bag. In a trash bag in a trash bin. Left him for dead in the streets of his foreign city in which he lived. And it was in that trash bag that Eddie was found by a caring, a caring group of people and later found by a caring mom and a caring dad. And they ensured that Eddie had everything he needed in order to be cared for properly. And they began to open their hearts to Eddie. And they eventually went through the process of adopting Eddie to call Eddie their very own son. And Eddie now enjoys all the rights of sonship. Anything any other child in the house has rights to, Eddie has rights to. All of his weaknesses, even including his Down syndrome, is met with the utmost care, like any other child in the house with a weakness would have. They see Eddie as a blessing. In fact, during the interview, the mother went on and on about what a blessing Eddie was to their family and the joy that he brings to the family and the goodness that he brings to the family. The mother basically said that Eddie just makes us better as a family. Eddie went from trash bag to a loving home. Eddie went from being deemed worthless to being deemed priceless because this is the power of family. And this is also a a perfect reflection of the family of God that you and I are now a part of if we trust Jesus with our lives. Verse 12 in chapter 18 of Romans reads, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. When thinking about the concept of family, or the church as family, you often hear me quote De Hadi Lewis, the lead pastor at Blueprint Church, who says that the church isn't like family, the church is family. This is one of the many verses that declares that spiritual reality, that the church is not like family, the church is in fact family. Paul begins by describing a the debt of being adopted That is to be paid. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The first quality of being a part of the family of God that we see in this text is that we are free, we are no longer slaves. Enslaves, in fact, to sin. This passage follows a beautiful passage of scripture where we learn of the blessed position in Christ that we've been given. In verses 9 through 11, we see this position. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. Chapter 8, verse 9 through 11. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's your position in Christ. You now belong to Christ. You are now alive in Christ. You are now being raised with Christ, through Christ. And through his very own spirit, you are being raised. The very spirit that now lives and resides on the inside of you. And as a result, you have been set free from the yoke and bondage of sin. As Christians, our lives are no longer bound up in what we used to do. As Christians, our lives are now bound up in who we belong to. This is where the Apostle Paul had. this is what the the Apostle Paul has in mind in, in verse 12 when he says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh though to live according to the flesh. See our debt is no longer to the flesh. That debt was paid by Jesus. We are free from the bondage of the flesh from the bondage of sin. We don't owe the flesh anything. And this is a lifelong struggle for the Christian to realize and internalize and intake. We, we struggle with this ideal, but we don't owe the flesh anything. I don't owe my flesh anything, and you neither do you. I don't have to give in to the impulses towards sin, and I don't have to give in to the impulses towards unrighteousness and as you are certainly aware like I am we don't always live like that and when I and when I say we I am most certainly referring to myself when I say we don't always live like that we sometimes live like not only are we still indebted to the flesh but that it is a good thing to even give in to the flesh the world has given us cute little sayings to justify giving ourselves over to the flesh. Things like you owe it to yourself. In July 2015, there was a team of hackers who broke into a website. The website was called Ashley Madison. It's a website that was built for people seeking extramarital affairs. And the hackers broke in and they and they got all of the, 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 the users out of the database, and they leaked the list of users to the world. And many lives were destroyed as a result of it. Many men and women were embarrassed as a result of it. Many ministries were uprooted because there were pastors and preachers and laborers and ministry that were on that list. The data breach exposed limitless people. But the most memorable thing about this, about this particular incident wasn't the database breach for me. It was stumbling upon the actual slogan that Ashley Madison was using to woo people in. Life is short, have an affair. This in a nutshell is what we hear from our flesh and what we hear from the world daily. You owe it to yourself. Life is short. Don't deprive yourself. Have that affair. Don't deprive yourself. Give in to those sexual impulses and go ahead and tell that lie to collect an extra few dollars. Go ahead and tell that person off that made you mad. You owe it to yourself. Go ahead and buy that thing that you're buying only because you saw somebody else with it. You owe it to yourself. Life is too short. Giving into the flesh is sometimes presented to us as a sort of freedom because it is ignoring a boundary. Imagine jumping out of a plane and then taking off the parachute because you wanna be free. Of course, you may feel less restricted in that moment And there is a sense of freedom because the restriction of the parachute can certainly be uncomfortable. But make no mistake about it, you are not free. In fact, that kind of freedom only leads to death. Paul is saying no, those who are in Christ don't owe the flesh. Anything And living a habitual life like we owe the flesh will not lead to the freedom that many times we've been told it will. It will only lead to one thing, and that is death. We don't owe the flesh anything, but we owe the Spirit everything. Paul says in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says we are not debtors to the flesh, but he says we are debtors. And so who is our debt to? Our debt is to the one who has adopted us. We have been adopted as sons and as daughters of the most high king. We have been brought from eternal life to, or from eternal death to eternal life. We have been delivered from the darkness of this world and transformed into the light of his kingdom, and we owe him everything. And so Paul's instruction is to live like you are a debtor, not to the flesh. Live like you are a debtor to the one who has adopted you. Put to death the deeds of the body. Why? Because you are a debtor to the one who has adopted you. But put to death the deeds of the body because there is no freedom in the deeds of the body. True freedom is not the affair that we're encouraged to Take part in, but true freedom is the opportunity to discover the true depths of love and passion and compassion that can be cultivated through years and years of faithfulness. True freedom is not buying that thing just because you saw somebody else with it, but rather, true freedom is the ability to be so content in Jesus Christ that you can use that money as a way of blessing your children with a vacation that maybe you've never taken. Or even blessing your neighbor or your community by meeting a need that is, that is expressed throughout the community. But see, here we see another quality of the family of God. It's, it's our outcome. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Real, real briefly, let me just sit on that for a minute because I do want to come back to it. But when we say, more, when we say outcome here, what we're talking about is what happens after. If you submit to the flesh, if you allow your life to be governed by the flesh, then you will die. And when Paul expresses death, he is not expressing death in this life. He is expressing death in the next, in eternal death. He says on the flip side, if you live according to the spirit, whoever submits his or herself to the ownership of God through faith in Jesus Christ and whoever whoever turns away from the old life, We'll experience life in the eternal life, rather, in the presence of God. Like I said, we'll come back to that verse 14. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul is, des- Paul is describing who we actually are now. You see, whenever we engage in sin, we are living like who we were. We are living like slaves. And if our lives are characterized by a habitual pattern of sin with little conviction, it could be because we are not who we believe ourselves to be. Now, please hear me if, if, because I want to make sure I'm clear on this. I did not say if your life has any sin. I said if our lives are characterized by a habitual pattern of sin with little conviction, there's a major difference, and we need to understand the difference. As long as we are in this body, the war against our flesh wages on. But the problem is not with the war. The problem is it with the one who refuses to fight. Now, notice that Paul gives a qualifier to who is, in fact, a part of this family. He says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's a certain quality that all of God's children possess, they are making a habitual practice of following the lead of the Spirit of God, meaning they are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So when we hear or say say the words, we are all God's children, please know that it is true in one sense. We are a part of the human family. We are all image bearers. We are all from the same source and from the same creator. And because we are, we should strive to treat one another with dignity and treat one another with respect and treat one another with compassion. And we strive to serve one another, and sacrifice for the betterment of one another. We should promote justice for any of us that are not experiencing it. We should preach Jesus to any of us who have yet to embrace him. And all of that is our duty to anyone within the human family. But we see Paul drawing a line between the human family and God's adopted family. Because he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. As children of God in the adopted sense, we enjoy a special bond. We have the Spirit of God residing on the inside of us. And we have the Spirit of God leading us. And we are following his lead we have we've been set free from the bondage of sin and no longer are constrained to the sinful desires and passions in our flesh and it is for this reason that the church as the family of god cannot be confused with the family of humanity created by god they are two different things both have been impacted by the curse of sin but only one has been redeemed from the curse through trust in jesus christ The church of Jesus Christ is made up of the redeemed family, the ones who've been redeemed from the curse, the family that is being led by the Spirit of God. And this is one of the reasons why you find in most churches some sort of covenant that is calling members to a pursuit of righteous living. A person who is not committed to living righteously is not living on Paul's words. In verse 14, whoever is led by the Spirit of God is a son of God. And so if that person isn't living out, the call to express their sonship, then how can the church, the local church, deem them a part of the family? We are undermining the supernatural work of adoption whenever we say it does not matter what your life is. It does not matter how you live. You're still a family member. We're undermining adoption, which leads to my next point. Quality of the family of God, first we're free. Another quality of the family of God is that we are adopted. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have become the family of God by way of adoption. It's a legal transaction. It's a transaction that has happened not not as a result of our natural circumstances, nor as a result of our own achievements. Again, we do not enjoy the relational blessing with God apart from Jesus. We are created by God. We are a part of the human family. But due to the fall in, uh, in Eden, we are cursed by sin and considered to be children destined for wrath as a result of that curse. But when, when, when Christ dies on the cross, and when Christ died on the cross, taking our sin and our shame upon his own back, and when, we, and when we trust him by faith as Lord and as Savior, a divine legal transaction takes place. Our status as children of wrath is exchanged for a new status as adopted sons and daughters of the king. Now, while our status as adopted sons or rather, now, while our status is one of adopted children, God doesn't treat us less than. He is in the very, he is in fact the very best father that an adoptee could ever have. You know, unfortunately, when you think about this life, this life of sin that we live in, there are sometimes times that children are adopted and they're adopted in worse homes than they were when they were in orphanages. You see, children who are sadly placed into the hands of abusive families, verbally, physically, even sexually, families in which they are more slave than child, this is not our father. In fact, one of the historical realities that I'm sure Paul had in mind as he shared this new reality of adoption with the church in Rome was how the adopted were treated in his day, or at least how the adopted were treated or or considered legally in that day. An adopted son or daughter in that day, no matter the age of adoption, carried all the rights of the blood family. All of the rights of the blood children. There was supposed to be no distinction in terms of rights and inheritance and treatment. It was as if they were blood. And this is the relationship that we enjoy with God our Father in heaven. Not an abusive one. Not one of Bondage. Paul says it is not, we do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we receive the spirit of adoption as sons. Now we've been given a relationship as adoptees where we are given all the spiritual blessings as if we are his own by nature. He holds nothing back from us. In fact, Paul tells us just a few verses down in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He holds nothing back from us. And it is with this truth that we hear Paul say, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, how real is this adoption? How real is your adoption in Christ? You are now able to call God Abba. It is an, an Arabic term for that, that highlights a deep intimacy with God. In the English, the language would be possibly Dada, Papa. Paul's Jewish kinship would have heard this language being used to speak of God. And they would have been shook to their foundation to hear someone speak of God as Abba. But Paul is highlighting this incredible kinship that we've been given as a result of Jesus' death on the cross. This new and intimate relationship that we enjoy because of Jesus laying down his very own life instead of us having to lay down ours. We are the family of God with Jesus as our elder brother and God as our father. God, the, the, or rather one commentator captures it this way, talking about Abba. Listen to this. He says, use of this term in addressing God has several implications. First, it is a family word, expressive of a family familiarity and intimacy. So when we use it, we are acknowledging that God is our father and we are his children. Second, it indicates that our relationship to our father is one of closeness, tenderness, and childlike confidence. It shows that even the transcendent God is not distant and foreign from his children. And thirdly, it expresses our family solidarity with Christ. Since Abba is our Abba, he is the firstborn among many brothers. In a real sense, we have a shared sonship and joint heirship with Jesus. Imagine that. We go from slaves. We go from slaves facing the wrath of God to children sitting at the feet of the God of the universe and calling him Abba. This is the power of Jesus' work on the cross for you and for me. This is what Paul has in mind when he says, you are a debtor. You owe nothing to your flesh, but you owe everything to God. As I reflect on reflect on this and in this, as I'm reading this and thinking of this, it, it it took me back to little Eddie. Young child found in the trash wrapped up in a trash bag and thrown in a trash can left for dead by his own mother blood mother and blood father and yet he's found he's cleaned up he's adopted but not adopted with burden not not adopted in a in in a, in a burdensome way i guess you know oh. you know he has so many things going on so many complications so many medical issues We'll just do the best we can. No, that's not the that's not the attitude of the family. They adopt him and they welcome him with all the love that they can give. Whereas his parents before looked down on him and looked down on his Down syndrome and saw it as a weakness to be exposed and to be cast aside and thrown away as waste. His new family looks right past all of that and they see him instead as a blessed member of the family family, no matter his particular weakness. Family of God, that's not just Eddie's story. Family of God, that's your story. That's my story. And if you have yet to begin to live your life in dedication and service to God, if you have yet to begin to live your life as if you are a debtor, then it probably is in large part because you have yet to see yourself in that story. Let me point you to one more quality of the family of God before we wrap up. The family of God is free. The family of God is adopted. And the family of God is inheritors. Verse 16 through 17, it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As we mentioned earlier in in this text, In Paul's mind, the adoption assures that we have the same rights as the natural-born children. And as a result, we also enjoy the same inheritance. We receive the gift of eternal life. We receive the gift of heaven. In this inheritance is the inheritance of presence. God says in his word, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to prepare a place that where he is there we may be also. This inheritance includes presence with God. This inheritance includes rule with God. The Bible tells us and the, the Paul tells us that we will in fact judge angels. That we have divine inheritance. That we have royal inheritance. This inheritance includes glory. This inheritance includes incorruption. The Bible says that we will put off the corruptible and put on the incorruptible. The the Bible says that our bodies will be glorified where there will be no sickness, there will be no suffering. This is our inheritance. We are heirs of God. We are children of God. We are recipients of a divine inheritance. But notice verse 17 has a Part that we need to also pay attention to, and it is this: provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. You see, saints, our airship is not only inclusive of bounty and blessing, but our airship also includes suffering and hardship and persecution in this life and difficulty and discomfort ridicule, and mockery. We've said it before, um, and I'll say it again. God is good, and life is hard. So in this life, there will be trouble. In fact, Jesus promised us that. In this world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. And so... Provided that we suffer with Him. A lot of us want to move past the suffering immediately into the blessing because the suffering is difficult. The suffering is uncomfortable. The suffering is hard. But, saints of God, the suffering is our inheritance as well. It's our inheritance. Paul declared that he desired to know Christ. But not just only in the power of his resurrection, but he desired to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. We are united with Christ both in blessing and in suffering. But we must, as we suffer, we must, as we struggle, we must, as we hurt, we must, as we experience difficulty in life, we must be willing to look past and see the inheritance that we have gained as a result of being adopted by God. Paul says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So through the suffering comes glory. Through the hardship comes victory. Through the pain comes reward. But we must endure. And with God, we will endure. The Spirit will carry us through. And so continue to hold on, continue to trust him through the angst, trust him through the agony, trust him through the difficulty. He will carry us to glory because we are his. This is the power of family. This is the power of family. We are like Eddie. We are like Eddie. Lost in a trash heap, with no hope, facing nothing but death. But because of Jesus Christ, we've been snatched out of that trash. We've been cleaned up. We've been adopted. We've been integrated into a blessed family. And all the divine rights that are in that family are now ours. Praise be to the Lamb of God. Let's pray. God, we love you so much and we give you all the thanks and praise and glory and honor for your word and for your adoption of us. We pray, Lord God, that we would live in reality of that adoption. That we would live as debtors, not to our flesh, but debtors to you. That we would live, Lord God, as those that have been adopted and given all the divine rights as all the other members of the family. That we would live as those, that, as those who have an inheritance. Father, help us by your spirit. Live in the light of these truths. These things we ask and we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.